Hey everybody, welcome to a new edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Christopher Ryan, and today is May Day. That's right, workers of the world unite. May Day, as I was uh, interested to learn when I lived in Spain, uh, is celebrated everywhere in the world except the United States. And that is because in the United States, anything that smacks of egalitarianism and workers' rights immediately gets uh, tarnished with tarnished with the brush. Is that a mixed metaphor? It gets, um, you know, shouted down as uh, socialist uh, bullshit, uh, you know, socialist egalitarian nonsense. But in this, as in many other things, the United States is the outlier. And in fact, uh, the notion that working people have inalienable rights to a certain amount of dignity and material sufficiency is not considered controversial in most of the world. Um, so anyway, coincidentally, this morning, uh, May 1st, 2014, I read an essay I'd, I'd had sitting around here on my desk for quite a while called In Praise of Idleness by Bertrand Russell, the great British philosopher. Uh, it's a very short essay. I encourage you to read it. It's available online. Uh, and basically what he says is that things don't need to be the way they are, economically speaking, that we've got more than enough technological uh, wherewithal. And keep in mind, this was written in 1935, right? But he argues we've got more than enough technological wherewithal to allow basically everyone to live well on uh, very little work. He talks about four hours a day of work. Um, and what he argues in this piece is that the only reason there's so much work, that, that those of us who work, work too much, and everyone else doesn't work at all, and they have to live in poverty. He says that's not the way it has to be. There's no economic material reason that things need to be that way. And, and the argument he makes, which is quite strong, is he says, look at, the, look at the world wars. Everybody who's involved in the world wars is removed from the economy of generating food, shelter, and medical care, and so, far, so forth for the general public. Those people are directed, their efforts are directed only at the war, right? So they're removed from the economy, and yet people continue to live uh, and you know, they continue to have food. And so this whole notion of it's necessary to work your ass off in order to survive, he argues, is something that we, it's an antiquated understanding of the relationship between abundance and labor. And uh, anyway, he starts by telling a story, kind of an amusing story, of a traveler who saw 12 beggars lying in the sun and he offered money to the laziest of them. Eleven of the beggars immediately jumped up to try to get the money, saying, I'm the laziest, I'm the laziest. And the one guy just laid there. That's the guy who got the money. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what that has to do with anything, but I think it's pretty cool. Here's a, here's a quote from the essay to give you a sense of what he's talking about. He, Bertrand Russell says, The conception of duty, speaking historically, has been a means used by the holders of power to induce others to live for the interests of their masters rather than for their own interests. Of course, the holders of power conceal this fact from themselves by managing to believe that their interests 
are identical with the larger interests of humanity. Fascinating. And so true. So true. Um, anyway, essentially what he says is that this idea of work being necessary to living is the, the morality of the slave state. Um, he says, uh, and he talks about the fact that, that the, uh, the, the rich often don't work at all, right? I mean, in the United States right now, we've got, I forget what it is. It's like, uh, you know, 30 families or something have, or even less, I think it might even be like a dozen families have the wealth of half of the nation in just those few families. Uh, it's insane, you know, and they're not working at all. What they're doing is living off the the money that was generated by the efforts of their parents or grandparents or what have you. So certainly the, the notion that one must work to have dignity does not apply to the ruling class. The, the top percentage, top 10% of the top 1%. Um, anyway, so I, I encourage you to read that essay. And another essay I would encourage you to read in celebration of May Day, which Bertrand Russell reminded me of quite a bit, is... Uh, the original Affluent Society by Marshall Salins, who's an anthropologist who uh, looked at hunter-gatherer societies and said, you know, they live really well. And this whole notion uh, that's rife in economics and anthropology that hunter-gatherers uh, were struggling for survival and, um, you know, and the extension of that, obviously, is that we're so lucky to be alive now with all our leisure time and so forth. Uh, he says that's completely inaccurate when you actually look at hunter-gatherer people. He says, this is quoting Marshall Salins. Again, the original affluent society is available online, so just Google it and you'll see PDFs. The view of human nature embedded in Western economic theory is an anomaly in human history. In fact, the basic organizing principle of our market economy, that humans are driven by greed and that more is always better than less, is a microscopically small minority view among the tens of thousands of cultures that have existed since Homo sapiens emerged some 200,000 years ago. Among the Hadza, for example, there are elaborate rituals to ensure that all meat is equally shared. Hoarding or even having a greater share than do others is socially unacceptable. Salen says, the world's most primitive people have few possessions, but they are not poor. Poverty is not a certain small amount of goods, nor is it just a relation between means and ends. Above all, it is a relation between people. Poverty is a social status. As such, it is the invention of civilization. It has grown with civilization at once as an invidious distinction between classes and more importantly as a tributary relation that can render agrarian peasants more susceptible to natural catastrophes than any winter camp of Alaskan Eskimo. Anyway, that's uh, the original Affluent Society by Marshall Salins. Now, I think this is relevant to this week's guest, Daniel Vitalis, because Daniel is all about the rewilding of human nature. You'll hear him argue that human beings are like domesticated dogs. We're like the chihuahuas of the Homo sapien world. And our hunter-gatherer ancestors are the wolves. And so we can't 
throw chihuahuas back into the wild and and expect them to survive. It's not going to happen. But what we can do is try to shape their lives in ways that replicate as much as possible the environment from which our ancestors evolved, in which our ancestors evolved. Um, Obviously, it's an argument that resonates with me. It's one that I've been making uh, in various ways for years. So uh, you'll hear a lot of agreement from me, but uh, Daniel's extremely articulate and comes at it from angles that, that I hadn't anticipated. Uh, let's see, a couple of things I want to get out of the way here. Uh, first of all, we have a new sponsor, Ting.com. If you ever listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, you've probably heard him talk about Ting. They're great. Um, in fact, through Joe, I signed up for Ting and have been using them for about a year. It's a mobile phone company. They work on the Sprint Network, uh, and essentially what they've done is they, you know, they've answered your prayers about mobile phone companies. My complaint with mobile phone companies is that they're full of shit. They trick you. They lie to you. There are hidden charges. You've got to buy packages that include a bunch of stuff you're never going to use. If you're like me, I use a mobile phone uh, for emergency phone calls. I hate talking on the goddamn thing. I really do. Um, but I and I, I hate calling people because I, I always feel like I'm interrupting someone. I, you know, I feel like anytime I make a call to someone's mobile, I imagine they're either like, you know, in the bathroom, in a meeting, you know, doing something. I, maybe that's age. Maybe that's because I grew up, you know, in the time when there were actual phones and people didn't answer them if, if it was a hassle. Now you've got the phone in your pocket. Even if it's a hassle, people tend to answer it. So I don't know. Maybe you don't feel that. But. Anyway, the point is, with Ting, you pay for only what you use. So if you're the kind of person who uses it for calls, but you don't download stuff, you're not watching movies on your phone, then you don't need the data package. And if you use some data one month, well, you pay for it that month, but you don't pay for it every month. So what I would encourage you to do is go to Ting.com, T-I-N-G.com, and they've got a thing there where you enter in your, your usage. Just look at last month's bill. How much data do you use? How much talk time do you use? How many messages, text messages do you send? And they'll tell you what your bill would be at Ting. So then you can compare. Now, for most people, I think, you know, over 90% of people, there's a significant savings. So check them out. If you decide to go for it, go to sexatdawn.ting.com. You get 25% off. I mean, sorry, 25 bucks off. I think your first month's bill or, or whatever. Um and uh, they'll send a little, throw some money our way too. So it's a way of supporting the podcast if you decide you want to do that. You can also, of course, support the podcast by buying t-shirts at chrisryanphd.com. Go to the store and you'll see there's a whole bunch of new shirts up there. Uh, Civilized to Death shirts, probably the first time in history that the uh, t-shirts have been printed before the book's been written, but there you go. Uh, we also have paleo modern shirts. We've got uh, women's tank tops. We've got all the new styles, hoodies, all kinds of stuff. And of course, tangentially speaking, shirts, t-shirts, hoodies. Uh, they're all there and place an order. Mom will get it out to you immediately. And uh, what else? Shore Design t-shirts. If you if you like the material, go to shoredesigntshirts.com. They've got a whole bunch of styles all using the same material. And uh, all sorts of Buddhas and primates of various uh, types. One of the shirts, the Civilized to Death shirt, was designed by Bruno. 
I don't remember Bruno's last name, but his information's on the website there uh, where you order. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool design, sort of a sad chimp with an iPhone. Um, okay, and I want to congratulate Jay Fincher, the first subscriber to Talking Out My Ass, <laughs> which doesn't, again, doesn't exist. Um, the idea is I'm going to do a, a separate podcast for people who want to hear my travel stories and just, you know, me uh, yammering on about various things that have happened to me over the years and uh, what I've learned from them. Uh, and so I said something about it in the last podcast. I think what I'm going to do is have them like 99 cents per episode or something. But if you send in 20 bucks, you'll get a, a year's uh, subscription or probably more because I'll forget to worry about it a year from now. Um, but um so you'll just be sort of uh, put on a list or something and you'll you'll get them free. So Jay sent in 24 bucks. He said 20 was for a subscription and four bucks was a, a tip. So <laughs> thanks, Jay. Very nice. Very nice. I've got one subscriber. Got to do it now. Uh, OK, another thing I wanted to talk about. Some people were offended by a reference I made to hate. I think I said hate fucking. It might have been in the podcast with Joe and Duncan. And um, so I, I had a bit of an exchange on Twitter. And then we, I've been thinking about it. I saw Sarah Palin last night saying her incredibly stupid shit about baptizing terrorists by waterboarding them. And I think what, I think the misunderstanding is that the, person who was offended by that, at least the, the person who told me she was offended by it, understood the term hate fucking to be rape. And that's not at all what we were talking about. What we were talking about was someone that you're sexually attracted to, but uh, in every other way are repulsed by. So Sarah Palin to me, I look at her, I think, even even in her craziness, there's something sexually compelling. Maybe it is her craziness, you know, like you just imagine she'd be wild in, in the sack, you know. But everything about her completely repulses me. Um, so that's what I meant by it. I didn't mean, you know, I'd like to rape Sarah Palin. Not at all. I don't want to rape anybody. Um, but um, I can understand how someone took it that way. And so, you know, I just want to clarify that anyone else who heard that and was made uncomfortable by it, please understand that's that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about raping someone we hate. We're talking about being sexually attracted to someone that we're not uh, in any other way attracted to and we're actually repulsed by. Um, so anyway, that I just want to clarify that. And, you know, it reminded me of a conversation I had recently with uh, Jeffrey Miller, who's a professor at University of New Mexico, an evolutionary psychologist. And he was telling me that um, these days professors have to um, provide trigger warnings to their students in their classes where they're basically saying, look, you know, maybe in class session number seven, there's going to be some discussion um, of, uh, you know, whatever, um, uh, stillbirth or, or of, you know, warfare of, uh, you know, of someone dying of trauma, of, of rape, of murder, of whatever it is. And so you might want to skip that class if you're sensitive about that sort of material. 
And look, I can understand someone's got PTSD, someone's just come back from a war zone, someone's, you know, been hurt deeply in some way. Uh, I guess it makes sense to to just let them know that uh, this material is going to be under discussion. And, and yeah, I can understand why they might want to skip that. But it, I have to say, and I know I'm going to sound like a dick, but it, it did remind me of this old story I heard a long time ago. I think it was set in India. It's apocryphal, of course. It's a it's a myth, but the idea is that the Maharaja was out walking. This is you know back in the day, everyone was barefoot. He was out walking, and he stepped on a sharp stone. And he hurt his foot, and so that night he got all his advisors together, and he said, "Listen, I don't want this to ever happen again. So we need to cover all the roads in the kingdom in leather, so no one will ever hurt their foot again." And the uh, the advisors got together and, and they were talking and they said, Jesus, they calculated how much leather they'd need. And it was like, you know, we're ne- there's no, not so much leather in all the world to cover all the roads in the kingdom. What are we going to do? Because nobody wants to tell the Maharaja that they can't do what he wants done. And somebody came up with the bright idea of what if, how much leather would it take to just cover all our feet? So that's the origin of the road. Oh, sorry, of the shoe, <laughs> not of the road. And uh, yeah, so I see American society, it seems to constantly be trying to eliminate dangers and yet overestimate and exaggerate those dangers. You know, you look at kids, you look at the protection of kids. Everybody's got their fucking helmets on and they're shutting down playgrounds because kids fall and hurt themselves. And again, I'm a dick. I don't have any kids. So it's easy for me to say, you know, the hell with it. But there's this thing called the hygiene hypothesis. Look into it if you haven't heard of it. The whole idea is that by protecting kids from pathogens, by not letting them play in the dirt, by not letting them get scraped up and, you know, drag their cell, themselves around in, in the yard and dog shit and all this stuff. By not letting kids come into contact with these things, we actually create allergies, illnesses, all sorts of autoimmune disorders because the body needs to learn. The body needs to have challenges and conflicts in order to develop the immune response in order to develop a healthy relationship with the world. Now, it doesn't take much thought to apply this to other aspects of life. We need to deal with our shit, not eliminate it from our environment. Eliminating it from the environment doesn't solve anything. And in fact, it's fucking impossible. Look at what's going on with antibiotics right now. You know, we're trying to wipe everything out. We're overusing the antibiotics. So what's happening? The pathogens just mutate into something that we can't control with the antibiotics. So now we've got an even bigger problem. Okay, enough ranting from me. Carsey Blanton, who uh, does the theme song for this podcast, recently sent me a beautiful cover she did of the Tom Waits song, Green Grass. And uh, I asked her if I could use it on the podcast, and she said yes. So I'm going to play, instead of the normal intro music, I'm going to play Carsey Blanton doing Green Grass by Tom Waits. Really listen to the words, folks, because for my money, this is the most subtle and articulate um description of 
life and death and beauty and so on. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks. Bye. Lay your head where my heart used to be On the earth above me Lay down in the green grass Remember when you loved me Come closer, don't be shy Stand beneath the rainy sky The moon is over the rise Think of me as a train goes by Clear the thistles and brambles Whisper, didn't he ramble? Now there's a bubble of me And it's floating in thee Stand in the shade of me Things are now made of me The weather vane will say Smells like rain today God took the stars and he tossed them Can't tell the birds from the blossoms You'll never be free of me He'll make a tree from me Don't say goodbye to me Describe the sky to me And if the sky falls Mark my words We'll catch mockingbirds Lay your head where my heart used to be On the earth above me Lay down in the green grass Remember when you loved me All right, welcome to the podcast, Daniel Vitalis. Uh, Here we are in Paleo, Austin. Yeah, good to be with you, Chris. Did you see the weather this morning? Yeah, so we got bombarded with hail here. I'm thinking it dented some cars. Really? Yeah. Golf ball-sized hail. They always say that about Texas. There's golf ball-sized hail. Uh, Yeah, I didn't see the hail. We were uh, downtown at uh, Tucker Max's apartment. We were recording a podcast. Uh, He's in this penthouse apartment, beautiful place. And man, there was a lightning strike that felt like it probably hit the roof. Yeah, it must have hit the roof, she was saying, yeah. Oh, Cassie told you yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah it, it was like an explosion. insane. Because there was the flash, like, pow! There was no time between the flash and the explosion. 
pretty intense, pretty paleo. So uh, <laughs> anyway, we know we're here. I just met Daniel a couple of days ago at this Paleo FX conference. Uh, I saw your website a while back. I don't remember. Someone put me in touch with you or said, you got to check this guy out. And I looked at your website and I got to tell you, I was, you know, being a former sort of semi-professional photographer, I was really impressed by the photography. There's oh, some great, great work on it. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Really beautifully, beautifully designed site. And <laughs> this is going to sound like such ass kissing. But it turns out that you use Squarespace for your site. <laughs> yeah. Is actually, that right? So I just started using it. Yeah. Actually, I got so sick of the WordPress back end issues, you know, trying to figure out how to make that website work. So Squarespace has been really good to us. Yeah. Really easy for us to manage. Yeah. And, and I mean, it looks great. Yeah, and, and it's excellent. easy to make it look great. Yeah. Exactly. I, don't, I don't mean to like go off onto a, hey, a, a. Let's plug it. Yeah. Plug Squarespace. <laughs> I mean, what I was telling you before we started recording, the, the only kind of ads. I'm comfortable doing for the podcast are things I actually use and like, you know, cause I just, I feel weird. Like you're, you're selling some shit you don't use. Brought like, to well, you by Roundup ready. Thanks yeah. Monsanto. Yeah, well, I mean, if Monsanto, that's the other thing I've, I've already told my listeners if, you know, I get offered like six figures by, you know, some evil company, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be upfront about that. Right? <laughs> so beware <laughs> listeners. Um, anyway, so why, why don't you, uh, you know a lot more about yourself than I do. Why don't you tell us what your, what's your shtick? What are you doing here at this paleo thing? All right. So my name is Danny Vitalis and my passion is about biological living. I mean, I'm really interested in how human beings actually live in their wild environment. My, my real interest is in domestication. Right. And so I'm fascinated by what happens when you take an organism out of wild nature and through breeding and through environmental controls and through food manipulation, you actually turn it into a domestic subspecies. I love to use the analogy of dogs. We call dogs man's best friend. Mm -hmm. And I think people think, oh, that's like you know, Bob's best friend. But really, it means man in the old sense of man. So that we used to say he-man and she-man. And man was more the neutral. You know, it wasn't um, sexually specific. Right. So man's best friend means, of course, human's best friend. Because for, what, about 100,000 years, the geneticist tells us, we've been uh, auto-domesticating alongside dogs. Right. Yeah. So this is the oldest kinship relationship between humans and another species. Right. So all dogs are gray wolves. All dogs are gray wolves, right? Yeah. Shepherds are gray wolves and chihuahuas are gray wolves. And we call the gray wolf Canis lupus, but we call the dog Canis lupus familiaris. So that intraspecific epithet, familiaris, tells us we're talking about the domestic subspecies of the gray wolf. We're comfortable with that with dogs, cows, sheep, goats. But when it comes to human beings, we don't really talk about this. We act as if we are homo sapiens. But my argument is this. If we look to wild nature, we see Homo sapiens, the wild species. And yeah. there are about, about 100, they say there's about 100 uncontacted tribes still in the world. Mm. These are, are wild peoples, undomesticated. Domestic means of the household. These people are not of the household. They don't live in houses. They still eat wild foods. They're still living in wild nature. They are, uh, we could say, a, um, an endangered species, true Homo sapiens. We, I believe, are the domestic subspecies, right? 
we are very different. We do live in the house. We're not tolerant to the temperature conditions that they live in. We're not tolerant to the wild foods anymore. Mm. We breed in captivity. Right. And so I'm putting forth uh, this postulation that we are the domestic subspecies. I've named us Homo sapiens domestico fragilis. <laughs> and then that's, then that's nice. the fragile. And, and I say that's it nice. as kind of a joke, but yeah. because we are quite fragile and domestic compared to our wild predecessor. So, you know, first thing I want to put forward is that if we can, we sometimes actually do call ourselves Homo sapiens sapiens, the right. wise, wise man, as if we are somehow evolved out of those people. But what I would offer is that just like dogs are actually degenerated wild wolves, not evolved from the wolves. They haven't improved upon the wolf. In fact, this is why when we pure breed dogs, we see that they have all of these degenerative diseases. Of course, degeneration is sort of the opposite of evolution. We see the same thing in ourselves. We're yeah. degenerating from the wild people. So I think before we can even move forward, we need to recognize culturally that we are a domestic subspecies and then ask ourselves how far down this path we really want to continue going. And I love this idea of rewilding. So my work's really about, you know, rewilding. How can we as domestic, you know, we are domesticated, right? We're not going to become hunter gatherers again, but if we're going to live in a zoo, let's make the habitat a little bit, maybe more like our wild habitat. Dude, I, that, that's exactly the core of the book I'm working on now is that human beings are the only animal that's ever lived in a zoo that they themselves constructed. <laughs> and it's largely a shitty zoo. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to build a zoo, like, as you say, we're going to be in a zoo. That's the way it is. There's just no way to go back. Mm -hmm. But why not? Do you want to be in the fucking Calcutta Zoo or the San Diego Zoo? Yeah, right. Exactly. You know? I yeah. mean, come on. Yeah. Okay. So a lot comes up there. Uh, one thing that, that sprang to mind when you were talking, Homo sapiens sapien. I've also heard that uh, sapien sapien thing described as instead of wise, wise, it's to know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So Homo sapien is the homo, the, the, the primate that knows. Homo sapien sapien knows it knows. So if we know we know, how can we can't? take some control right mm -hmm. we know we're on a bus we know the bus has a steering wheel isn't the next stage to grab the steering wheel and right. you know like turn away from the cliff yeah and you know it's interesting because the sapien sapien refers to the grassalized version the gracile or the more lithe version yeah. the more graceful Not version right or even of cro-magnon so cro-magnon right. is anatomically modern human Two hundred thousand years ago emerges and we are a more slimmed down version so they use this uh, trinomial, um, sapien sapien to denote that, but it's interesting to know, to know, because they actually had larger brain cases than us. They had larger yeah. brains than us. So, so we actually have, right. Didn't so, they, yeah. so we see that even our, our, our neurology is degenerated yeah. from, from our predecessors. Now we seem so brilliant when we all work together, but on the individual level, our awareness is so blunted. I think it's interesting uh, there's a there's a verse in the Bible I really like. It says, uh, "Thinking themselves wise, they became as fools." Mm. Right, and I think that's really fitting here. Thinking ourselves wise, we have become we've become foolish. The average person um, does not know what is even needed for survival anymore. I'm just uh, writing that down because that's uh, that is an excellent line there. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and you, you raise an interesting point that, that again, I, I think about a lot. The, the difference between individual, what's good for an individual mm -hmm. and what's good for the... 
even good is the wrong way. What what uh, allows a species to mm-hmm. proliferate and dominate the planet? Evolution doesn't give a shit what happens to you as long as you reproduce and your offspring survive. Mm-hmm. That's it. End game. So you could you know be thirty year old alcoholic you know obese f- fuck up. As long as you had 10 kids, you, you know, in terms of evolution, you won, right? Right. You can be unhappy. You can be miserable. Mm-hmm. You can be you know, consuming carcinogens. You can, it doesn't matter, right? So the idea, I think a lot of people have this idea that evolution is a movement toward good, toward value, toward wisdom, toward whatever. Uh-huh. It's not. It's value neutral, right? Mm-hmm. It's all just, and I mean, I've, I've been thinking, I, I saw a TED talk that was given recently by Ed Young, I think his name is. He's a, an expert in parasites. Okay, I did And see he it. was talking about um, parasites that alter the behavior of their host, mm-hmm. like toxicoplasmosis right. is the famous example, but he gave like half a dozen. So in the case of toxicoplasmosis, what happens is this parasite gets into rodents, mice and rats. And it gets into their brain and it has an effect on the brain of the mouse that makes the mouse attracted to the smell of cat piss. Okay, I've heard of this, yeah. Right? And and lose all fear of cats. Mm -hmm. So then the mouse wanders over to where the cats are. The cats kill it and eat it. It wanders over quite aroused, if I understand it, right? He's like, he's he's actually sexually drawn to this. Oh, really? Is it a sexual thing? I believe it's like a sexual thing. It would be, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, it's a good motivator. The Lord works in mysterious <laughs> ways, <laughs> but, but it always seems to involve a heart. You know? uh, you're led to death by your heart. On there's probably some Bible verse about that. <laughs> Thinking in themselves aroused, they became they became mean. erect. Um, but anyway, so so the mouse wanders over, you know, with his little mouse heart on to the cats, gets killed, gets eaten by the cats, and the whole thing happens because toxico, toxicoplasmosis needs to be in the digestive system of cats mm. to reproduce. Oh, wow, right. So the whole thing is set up for this parasite. Right. And that Simba is called the circle of life. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I apply this to human beings, and mm. I'm thinking, I'm thinking we have been colonized by a parasite mm-hmm. that is in our brains and it's making us do things against our interests. Mm -hmm. That parasite is capitalism, consumerism. Mm -hmm. It's leading us to destroy ourselves, destroy each other, destroy our planet, do things that are Mm. clearly not in our interest as individuals. And don't feel good at the individual level, right? Right. It's not even an enjoyable... We don't even get a hard on Yeah, it's not Exactly, less and less. Although porn, I guess porn is part of it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there's something happened where, and it's a strange thing because generally, like on a species-wide level, it's pretty rare for a species to uh, to shoot itself in the foot sure. as effectively as yeah, we're It's doing. interesting. One of the things that we do in this is we monocrop ourselves, right? So I yeah. love to show people monocrop, an image of a monocrop of corn, and I'll say, yeah. this is the Manhattan of corn, Right, this is a city of corn. What's right. a city is where we push out all the other species except humans and the few little domesticated subspecies we've created to you know amuse ourselves, yeah. and we we monocrop ourselves. And what's interesting when you monocrop is that you see that disease proliferates in the monocrop because there's not enough diversity um, of ecology to help beat back these organisms. They end up getting a really good foothold. Pathogens can get a really good foothold. There's nothing right. to keep them in check, and they run right. rampant. And so we do this thing. We 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 
we deforest and then we fill the place with artifacts. I like to call our cities artifact land because, you know, an artifact is a, an object that bears uh, the mark of human will. So mm. I often say, like, if the difference between a, a flint stone and a flint arrowhead, one is a natural wild stone. The other is an artifact. They're the same material, but one bears the mark of human will. Right. Right. So we fill our lives with artifacts. In fact, looking around, it's very difficult to find something that isn't an artifact. Yeah. You could say, well, that plant, that tree over there, well, that's a horticultural variety of that tree. It's not even a naturally occurring. That's a yeah. d- domesticated subspecies, right? Or how about, well, how about this grass? Well, that's an imported grass from somewhere else. I mean, very hard to even find in our modern lives something that isn't an artifact. It's like a virtual reality. And then we fill that with so many human beings that um, we essentially create a kind of monocrop. And and even stranger, then we do this thing, our centers of healing, right? Our hospitals, which are, of course, uh, sort of a, a remnant of the Catholic church business model, right? Biggest building in town, guy in the white frock, woman running around, used to be the nun, is now the nurse, white tablet on your tongue. I mean, we got this go and bow down. I mean, it's the same, go confess your, go, go confess your sickness. Um, But this place that's supposed to be the place of healing, not only do we monocrop it with humans, we actually sterilize it to try to remove as many other organisms as possible. So we try to create this sterile environment. What we end up with is a place where only humans can be and the most dangerous antibiotic-resistant organisms ever. I often think of it like this. It's like in the hospital, right? You hear this thing, beware the hospital staff, a lacacus. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, so what you have there is almost like nature seeing this vacuum and saying, how can I make some compost here? What do I got? I got some people and staphylococcus. Let's turn these people right. into soil and try to get something in, like living in this place again, right? right. So we've created this yeah. situation where we have a monocrop of people and then usually right in the center is this place that's supposed to be sterile, but it's actually filled with the most dangerous <sighs> organisms ever. You're blowing my mind here. I mean, the idea that, that nature is trying to kill people in a hospital in order to bring life to a dead yeah, to space. Get some hummus, right? Like something, to, <laughs> something that some plants, some seeds can get a foothold in. You know, oh, I guess that's bioremediation. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's just interesting to think. Okay, now here the the, the whole life death thing. That you know, since we're we're into that, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot in the last few days at this conference. All this, a lot of talks about how hunter gatherers are much healthier than agriculturalists and all that. We talked about that in Sex at Dawn. We we talked about the longevity lie. You know, we get into a lot of that stuff in in the book. So I'm accustomed to talking to people who think I'm full of shit. And it's very <laughs> rare to be with a bunch of gotcha. people who all know that yeah, our ancestors. Well, were there are like in twelve of us in the world. Right? Yeah, but, but isn't it weird? You know, because yeah. you're so used to be like, no, like yeah. a thirty-five-year-old oh, yeah. was old. Like yeah. Jesus, I got to do this again. I heard we live way longer now. Yeah, yeah we've doubled the human lifespan. Mm-hmm. Oh fuck, man! And I taught doctors in Spain, and and they're, they're doctors, mm-hmm. and they believe that bullshit. You know, sure. so. So it's interesting to be around people who all sort of take that as a given and, you know, and they're healthier and they're taller and yada, yada, yada. But here's what I didn't hear anyone talk about, unsurprisingly. Uh, (laughs) Dead babies. Mm, Oh, yeah. Let's talk about dead babies. Right? (laughs) Because, you know, my wife, you guys were talking while I was setting up the mic. She's from Mozambique. And she often talks about how, you know, she had a lot of patients. She worked there for years. Then she worked in Europe. She's worked in the U.S. And how much healthier the Africans were mm-hmm. as compared to the Europeans and the Americans. 
And yeah, part of that is diet. Part of it is there's still a lot more wild food and there's not as much cultivation. There's not as much pesticide use, even yada, yada, yada. But another part of it is the unhealthy ones die when they're babies. Sure. Or, or let's take the taboo further. If we look back, a lot of them are killed. Yeah, right? infanticide. Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I personally think we should bring a little infanticide back, but I mean, not everyone agrees with me. Well, we do, <laughs> but we call it abortion. Sure, and we, we're not selecting exactly. there. Exactly. We're not selecting in the same way. So, right. yeah, unfortunately, what I see that people are doing, it's almost as if we, we came to understand how natural selection works, and then we said, what would happen if we did unnatural selection, yeah. and we selected for the worst traits in ourselves, right. and then we fill the world up? It's like a zombie movie, but instead yeah. of zombies, it's like people who have blunted awareness and whose bodies are falling apart roaming the streets blindly, you know, unable to look up from their mobile phones as they bump into each other. I've been wondering, why is it that zombie movies and TV shows sure. are so big these days? And yeah. I, because it's definitely touching It brings us something. back to the parasite that leads people uh, yeah. to, 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 to want to consume one another. Yeah, yeah but I think yeah. this is a big, I think this is actually a really important thing because when we start talking about, and I love, you know, when you first said the when I heard you say the Flintstoneization, I thought, God, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. So we have this we have this image of the the I guess the noble savage image or the the idea of the utopia of the hunter gatherer, right. and then this little dark secret of infanticide and and high child mortality rates comes up, and that one freaks people out. So I'll hear that one from people. Well, because I'll often say, tell me one thing that civilization has offered us that makes it worth doing. And don't give me, oh, the arts. Like, I'm sick of, like, hearing about, yeah, art's great, I love art, but I would prefer freedom, honestly, right? I'd rather paint on a cave wall and have freedom than have a museum and live in slavery, you know? So, so I'll say bring up one thing, and I think the only thing I can hear from people that I can kind of understand is, well, more of our children uh, survive past the age of one, Okay, but at the same time, here we are with our cognitive dissonance. Somehow, society's taught people to live with dissonance. This overpopulation issue. So people, right. people in one hand want to say, well, it's so great. We're keeping kids alive. You know, we're able to, to increase the survival rate of our kids. And, on the, and then the next thought is, oh, my God, there's 7 billion people. How are we going to make this work? And it's kind of clear that those two things are interrelated. So you know, how we deal with that, I don't know. I'm not suggesting that we really right. do infanticide, but I think that we need to understand that nature had that set up really well and yeah. we've hijacked a system that maybe we shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, you know, death or, or absence of life hmm. is assumed to be a negative <laughs> in this way of thinking, right? Sure. For the uninitiated. Right. And and my question is like how do what's the logical basis for that assumption? I don't think anyone really looks at the logical basis for that assumption. I don't understand how being dead is somehow something to be feared and 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 avoided blah 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 but not having been born doesn't come up as an issue. Right? <laughs> Because it's the same state of being or non-being, right? So, 
I mean, you look at it, you were talking about our healthcare system. I don't remember the number, but it's something like 30, 40% of all expenditures in medical expenditures in the United States happen with people in the last three months of their lives. Mm -hmm. We're living so much longer now. The quality is wonderful. No, we're just dying slower. (laughs) Yeah, much slower. It's like watching fucking basketball Mm -hmm. on TV. You know, the last (laughs) minute takes 45 minutes. You know, it's like. All the timeouts and the... the well, you, you need some time to extract the last bit of somebody's wealth before they um, exactly. are recycled back in. Soylent Green exactly. is people. <laughs> exactly. That's what they're doing. Oh, let's do a hip replacement on Grandma. She's in her 90s. Are you fucking kidding me? Leave mm-hmm. Grandma the fuck alone. Let her die in peace, right? And, and, and with some money and with yeah. her house. Anyway, I, I don't want to get on a, a rant on that. I've done that so many times on this podcast. But my point is about infanticide and, you know, and this is, I, I, I don't know. I, I keep, when I do these podcasts, like, I forget people listen to this shit. So I'll say <laughs> stuff that is like, I can't believe I said that. Oh. And like 50,000 people just heard me say, well, Hitler had some good ideas. Uh, <laughs> but, but no, the, I mean, the, the point is that, you know, we can't talk about eugenics yeah. because of the Nazis. We can't talk about having, you know, you said, well, what if we, you know, made this selective breeding and we took it in a different direction? But I kind of feel like what we've done is we refuse to be selective at all. We just yeah. let let yeah. go of the wheel and see where the bus goes. Right. You know, I, the thing about eugenics for me is, uh, since we're not going to talk about it, is that... Uh, <laughs> I, you know, the eugenics decides, as a, right? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Top-down eugenics is a little bit creepy to me, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like I might be, you know, geez, selected for extinction. But it would be interesting to educate individuals on selection so that they make choices from that place rather right. than at random. And I think that the, the yeah, the old-style eugenics, especially the negative eugenics, like, oh, we're going to sterilize this part of the population mm. and we're going to increase this part of the population – as opposed to an approach of teaching people to live in some kind of biological alignment. And not just because, um, because this is going to make a better society, but I think the sell on it is you're going to feel better as a person, right? right? So we were just at this paleo thing where, you know, what do people there really care about? They want to feel better. They want to look sexier. They yeah. want to have a better time. But they're starting to make selective choices that will benefit society, but from the selfish place rather than from that top-down right. place. Right. So I think eugenics, like... EU could be switched to like Y-O-U genics. Eugenics. Eugenics, right. Like you you make the decision <laughs> yourself. Shit, yeah, you? I like word, a little wordplay. You, you come up with like, like I was on what, two panels with you? And yeah. both times I was like, damn, that dude comes up with some good shit. You said uh, on the shamanism thing, you made a really good point about, uh, what was it? You're, you're talking about the use of hallucinogens and how, oh, how we're like nutritionally deficient in entheogens. In entheogens. And that, yeah. I mean, your, your, as I remember it, your point was like, we evolved in the presence of these mm-hmm. chemicals. Most societies seem to have had some mm-hmm. access to entheogens in one way or another. Even if it's just rhythmic dancing mm-hmm. or whatever, trance states induced various yeah. ways, which release chemicals in the brain and so on. And your point was, you know, we're walking around, it's like a vitamin D deficiency. Right. We're walking around without. Most of us without the presence of this neurotransmitters, yeah. right? Upgraded yeah. neurotransmitters. You know, that's an interesting thing because 
when an organism lives in the presence of a nutrient, often it will stop producing that nutrient on its own and start right. to. So human beings are one of the few animals that don't produce vitamin C right. because our wild food diet we evolved in the presence of had so much vitamin C. The body said, you know, it's like us and fruit bats don't make vitamin C. Most organisms make their own ascorbic acid. We yeah. don't because there was no need to. There was so much of it, such a flush of it in our environment. Now you can buy oranges with no vitamin C in them. I mean, shockingly, right? They, you can get fruit with no vitamin C. So people can actually end up with vitamin C insufficiency, um, but that's not natural to us. I mean, you go outside and nibble on anything, you get enough of it. Yeah. So if we were living in an environment where neurotransmitters from the wild plants that we ate were present all the time and we used them all the time, is it possible that some of the neocortex is activated by that and the body's not producing as much DMT as it may be um, needs because we got some from our environment. And some people will argue, well, there's all these hunter-gatherers who don't have entheogens. Yeah, right. in the Arctic regions, those people didn't start there. They right. migrated up there. And when right. they got there, they found ways to access different brain states. And when you access different brain states, you produce some of these molecules. So, right. yeah. yeah, I think it is a deficiency. And I think that deficiency creates a kind of insanity. Yeah. And that kind of insanity leads to monocropping of people, leads uh, leads yeah. to all these this this kind of you know, zombie land we were talking about, it leads to artifact land and it leads to an obsession with the ego and with the self and uh, dissociation from the tribe and from each other. And do bring in sexuality to this, mm -hmm. right? Because if our, if the, the argument that we present in sex at dawn is correct, then modern people are generally deficient mm -hmm. in, in sexual pleasure mm -hmm. and in, in intimacy. Yeah. Because the only people we can be intimate with, whether erotic or not, is our immediate family, mm -hmm. whereas our ancestors evolved in these bands of 50 to 150 mm -hmm. people where there's a lot of intimacy. Women yeah. are breastfeeding one another's babies. Right, and, you know, right. a kid's running around, he gets hungry, some woman picks him up and gives him the tit. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter if that's right. your mother. And here, even your mother isn't breastfeeding you. Right, you know? right. She does it six months and then she resents you the rest sure. of her life. Sure, and, and you know, yeah. we give birth in captivity. Yeah. So the initial experience, I mean, I often think about this, the, the, for my first experience into the world might as well have been, you know, a gray alien probing on a spacecraft, right? right? Here I come from the warmth of the womb into this bright white lit environment where alarms are beeping, people are running around screaming like it's an emergency, mom's on drugs, so I'm on drugs, and the first thing I see is a guy in a mask with forceps in his hands, That that is the initial imprint in the limbic system of the brain then what comes for me next is genital mutilation right hey kid Welcome just so you know sex hurts yeah. and your mom will never protect you yeah. and so i don't even think we can talk about natural healthy sexuality until we face the fact that more than 50 percent of the men in this country are being genitally mutilated in my generation it was almost 90 yeah. percent and a lot of people don't realize that female genital mutilation only was outlawed in the u.s in 1996 up to 1976. Yeah, up till 1977, Blue Cross was paying for clitoridectomies. For what they would call overly enlarged clitoris. Or, or just she touches herself a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. want to stop the masturbation. Because, you know, masturbation causes a lot of diseases. And oh, yeah. We've got to yeah. stop everybody from touching themselves. Insanity. So, so we connected so much guilt, shame, to our, and pain to our sexuality. Yeah. And so that creates even further isolation and fear around. And then another thing we've done with sexuality, I mean, here, let's get controversial here. 
I, I just the Nazi right, reference. Right, no, no, this is, this will be good. Yeah, um, no, I just think this idea of safe sex needs to be readdressed uh-huh. because the terminology implies that sex isn't safe. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the obvious, um, implicit, right. right, meaning sex is unsafe. And now I love they don't even call it safe sex, and now it's safer sex because no sex is safe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your your dick could explode, or your uterus might catch on fire. I mean, sex is dangerous. Right. You have to yeah. like rather than going like the sane route would be healthy sex and we could teach kids about healthy sex and unhealthy sex mm-hmm. but that generally sex is just a biological need but when we start calling it safe and unsafe it gives the impression that the thing that drives you more than anything the urge that is moving you literally moving you bipedally through the world is dangerous yeah. inherently dangerous so yeah we wound people sexually and then we tell them it's dangerous and then we set them free to go do it with guilt and shame i mean we're so demented around sexuality and yet i think when it comes to this lifestyle, I've been talking about rewilding, there's this, you know, there's food, it's important, water, it's important, air, it's important. But I mean, what's really driving people is sex. And, and we wound people sexually, we wound more than half of our guys. I often say to people too, like, hey ladies, if, if you're sick of men being insensitive dickheads, then let's stop circumcising them because circumcised glands <laughs> become, <laughs> become calloused. And so men who are circumcised have insensitive dickheads. And, they, yeah. and there is research showing that actually they do become insensitive dickheads. So alexithmia is a disorder where people emotionally feel almost like robots. They're not sociopaths, but they can't connect emotionally. And there, are some cor- there is some evidence correlating circumcision to increases in this experience of feeling a kind of robotic emotional state. Really? Yeah. So in other words, circumcision leads to physical insensitive dickheads and then actually to metaphorical insensitive dickheads. Wow. Yeah, I see why you're, you're a little... Uh... Jealous of the Flintstoneization thing. <laughs> I know. Right How did I not alley, think man. of that one? <laughs> well, yeah, I hereby, you know, give you every right to use it at your will with with our blessings. Oh, uh-huh. I don't. I don't know that we even made it up. I mean, we did make it up, but then I googled it somewhere. I, I don't remember. Or someone sent me an email, or I don't, I don't know what. But it, someone else had used the sure. term. But I think they used it for something different. I don't okay. remember what it Flintstoneization was. Flintstoneization TM. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know that uh, the Flintstones was the first uh, television show to ever show a man and woman in bed together. Come on, was it really? Yeah. I remember growing up around that, being very confused. Right, like back when I used to think, was life black and white back then? <laughs> yeah. Life is black and white, and, yeah. and people slept in separate beds. Yeah, yeah. And the only, do you know, the first uh, interracial kiss on television? Star Trek. Well, that interspecies or interracial? No, interracial. Kirk and Uhuru. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Go Kirk, man. Yeah. He was he was a player. Huh? He was. <laughs> he probably also did the first interspecies because sure, he had sex yeah. with that green woman on that yeah. one planet. I oh, yeah. Trapped on a planet of all Amazon women. Yeah. Oh, somebody Poor save Kirk. him. Right. Get down there quick. Beam him out of there quick. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay, so how did you get into all this shit? Where, where are you from? What's, yeah, what's your so I grew, up, I grew up in New England, um, very progressive area. Uh, um, did grow up in New England, and my mom is um, an amazing, brilliant, but also s- pretty crazy lady. And she sort of raised me in a way like, son, you are to avoid civilization at all costs. We're on the run, hiding out from the domesticator. That was the, the vibe I got from my mom. She taught me in a very strange way to sort of avoid um, becoming a part of anything I could avoid becoming a part of. Wow. And so I was out of school by the sixth grade. 
was really my last full year. You're I sort of escaped child. school. No, I have a brother and sister. Yeah. Um, kind of a broken family, though. And I escaped school. I said, you know, I haven't seen a doctor in over 20 years. Um, I had a dental visit the other day, first in 20 years. But I escaped the medical system, and I escaped the compulsory schooling system as early as I could. Um, because both are, to me... Uh, all right, so we said it was a zoo before. That's a fun way of saying what it really is, which is really a factory farm, yeah. right, for human labor, for taxation of human labor and for yeah. human labor, right? So we don't produce meat in this factory farm. We produce labor to further civilization's undefined goal. I always often wonder, what is the, what is, what is the well, point Well, that gets it? us back to the parasite, Yeah. right? Yeah. Which, what's the parasite want? It wants more hosts. So, yeah. you know, sex is only for reproduction. Sure, right? right, right. And yeah, what is the goal? I mean, maybe we, maybe the parasite is God. The yeah. parasite is obviously controlling us. Yeah. So maybe, seems like by looking at what it's doing, it's encouraging us to overpopulate. It's encouraging yeah. us to destroy the planet. Sure. In a, in a transhuman quest, like I often think what it looks like the goal is, is um, how can we get these people to work enough to, to build machines that are conscious to make them obsolete so that we can leave the planet and mechanically explore the stars or something? Yeah. It's almost like a machine consciousness. I think you're right. And then it's interesting if we can yeah. go back to that biblical metaphor, um, which you hit on so eloquently in your book about... Um, the Garden of Eden being the you know the place where foraging humans live naked and happy picking from the trees, and that civilization was not a um, evolution out of the savage world, but a curse for this quest for a certain type of knowledge of good and evil. I love when you know I flip my phone over and I see the apple with the bite taken out of it, right? The machine that is like the parasite in my life, yeah. the machine that's become like t starting to take my life over, yeah. and there it is putting it in my face, yeah. that decision humans made for a certain kind of knowledge that led to a kind of curse. And here we are like mechanized zombies walking around wearing the badge of the thing, yeah. you know, with pride, right? Like with, yeah. it's just, it's fascinating. But I, yeah, I've often wondered what, what is the purpose? Obviously, um, there's some goal. Does anyone know what it is? Is it collective? Is it a parasite driving us? But here we are in more of a factory farm than really a zoo. I think the zoo helps me sleep at night when I think of it. Okay, it's a zoo. I can enjoy the habitat I create. But reality of this place is I think it is a factory farm. And, it's, and, you know, in a factory farm, you do things like, you know, we found that if we cut the tails off, the pigs won't gnaw on each other's tails, which is a behavior that only happens in captivity, right? Well, we found if we cut the foreskin off, right? The men are less likely to pleasure themselves and to, to feel gratification sexually and less intimacy will happen, right? It's kind of like that kind of a thing. Like we mm. clip tails on, clip ears on dogs. We yeah. clip penises on boys, right? All these weird things that we do. So, so I, I was turned on to that really at an early age. And I realized that what doctors were doing, um, these kind of this weird examination, cutting, burning, slashing, irradiating thing could never lead to health. I saw that schooling was only suppressing my ability to learn. So I escaped all that, I guess getting back to it, followed my passion. You know what's interesting? Looking back, all this work for me, the first thing I studied when I escaped school, drugs. 
how do these things work? Mm. And, you know, that was where I first started to learn chemistry, started to learn how different plants can interact with us biochemically, you know, stuff they were not teaching me in school. That led me actually to get more interested in food, mm. right? Once I saw that what the, the strong effect of drugs made me ask, what's the subtler effect of foods? Right. Eventually, that kind of led me to realize that there's only artificial distinctions between drugs and food, and that's an, an interesting thing. And that led me to wonder, what is the natural feed of humans? right? What's the natural food for humans? And that led me eventually to realize it took me like 15 years to figure out if I wanted to know what was natural for humans to eat, I could look at what hunter gatherers ate. That took me a long time to figure out. Nobody was talking about it back then. Mm. And here's like, I kind of, here's the analogy. It's like, if you want to figure out what chimpanzees eat, you're wasting your time asking zookeepers. You need to ask the people in the field who look at wild chimpanzees. And what's going on in our culture, it's funny, is, is people want to figure out what's natural for humans, and they ask all the experts who are just zookeepers. They're yeah. the zookeepers. Right. They definitely don't know what human beings eat. So, right. so that led me to look at natural people. And the more I looked at that, the more I realized, oh, my God, we, why are we not at least basing our modern life off of this? Obviously, we're not going back to it. I get that, right? We've got to transcend forward escape, right? But... Why are we not basing? Why are we not even trying to approximate any of it? And that's, you know, this, yeah, this is over the course of 20 years. I've, it took me a long time to arrive at a, a, any kind of sanity around, you know, the idea of how we should live. Mm. Were you angry? Did you go through oh, anger? <laughs> yeah, wow. Because you don't seem like an angry guy now, but I imagine right. that process must include a lot of anger. Yeah. Because you're born... Yeah, and I, I felt this. I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I made a wigwam when I was a kid. I, I at like 11 or something like that, uh, it occurred to me that I did not respect the culture I was born into. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. All, that I, it was wrong. It I was, connect with that. The yeah. values were wrong. The, mm -hmm. You know, just like I was born in the wrong time and place. So mm -hmm. I got it into my head that I was, uh, you know, American Indian reincarnated something happened you know whatever yeah. and I could not stop reading I read every book I read was about American Indians I would come home from school take off my clothes put on my loincloth <laughs> which was a bath towel a purple or pink bath towel because those are what we had folded into thirds long way with a belt around I had moccasins that I had sewn myself I had these cassette tapes from some like language some reservation somewhere that like I studied Lakota I you know tan skins like all, all this stuff some of the stuff we were talking about in the conference uh, so cool yeah I was really into it but there was a lot of anger involved in that because mm -hmm. what the fuck am I doing here this right. is bullshit right and, and looking around going am I taking crazy pills does anybody else notice this they all seem to just be um blindly walking for like they're all on the conveyor belt like how do they not notice this yeah i was pretty angry about that the first i remember being angry about the first two things i remember being angry about one was um i didn't feel like anybody had any there was no system to how we took care of our bodies groomed ourselves i was always like i don't feel like going to the bathroom and toilets really makes sense how come nobody there's uh. is there a system to how we're supposed to shit like what am i supposed to do in the shower and how am i supposed to toothbrushes like where did these come from like i i felt like there was no explanation of how to, we were supposed to take care of our bodies we see how cats and dogs groom but i felt it was really haphazard the way that oh, we do it yeah. the other thing that really frustrated me and this was this was even earlier on was my mother explaining to me because i became obsessed as a young young kid with paleontology oh. because i felt that there must be something buried 
that if we could find it would answer why all the, why we live this way. I felt like we had lost something really important and like archaeology and paleontology was really important because if we don't find this information, we're going to destroy ourselves. That was a sense, even as like a three and four year old kid, I can remember not being able to articulate that, but understanding that. And I became angry when my mother told me that paleontologists were not well paid because I thought this is the most important job there is that we need to figure out what happened. Right. right. There, I'm like there was an age of giant lizards. <laughs> like there's, you know, what were, you know, where do we come from? What is all this? How, what have we forgotten? And we're not paying the people who could potentially find this missing information. Um, and that really frustrated me. And yeah. I, and I kind of felt, I think from that point on, I felt really jaded, but I got to say, going back to the subject of shamanism and entheogens, I think that's been, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the panel the other day. For me, this idea of the bad trip is the experience of letting that anger go. And when it's moving through you, it can be really difficult to process. But once it's out, it's out. And, you know, I think it gives us an opportunity to cleanse ourselves of a lot of anger, right? I mean, you learn in that experience that anger is toxic to you. It's hurting you more than it's hurting anybody else. It's certainly not serving you. And over time, I think I've been able to like cleanse my spirit of a lot of that anger and also come to see it as a little bit, it's kind of actually amusing once you give yourself over to the fact that it's not your job to shoulder this, right? It's like not my job or your job to figure out what 7 billion people need to do, right? Like, mm. I mean, I did think at some point, like maybe I could write the Messiah complex. Maybe I can be the one to figure out how we could, you know, live sustainably or something. Right. Now that I don't feel responsible for that, I, you know, I, I guess <laughs> yeah, it's good to let that go. <laughs> I feel like a lot less, you know, resentment in the whole thing can become, at least I can see the humor in it. I yeah. Guess, you know? Yeah. I, I, I do this podcast with two comedians once a month. Uh, you know, we, we've done <laughs> five of them now and, and uh, it, it's an interesting thing because one of them is, is convinced that the future is, where it's at, like the, mm-hmm. the singularity, sure, is the transhuman be kind of agenda. Yeah. yeah. The other one is like, no, no, it's all about right now. Like mm-hmm. I've got a great life and I'm here with my two buddies and everything's wonderful right. and we're great. And I'm like, no, no, it's in the past. Right. That's, <laughs> it was great. Now it sucks. And the future is going to be even worse. <laughs> so, so my role in that little, uh, you know, three-way is the the naysayer and the downer sure, and the right. like, no, dude. Quit dragging us down, Chris. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, you know, and this relates to what you were just saying is, like, I I describe myself as a as a you know an optimist. It's it's like the Earth. You know, you've got the core, then you've got the mantle, then you've got the crust. You know, and then you've got the atmosphere and so on. So there are layers, and you know. There's definitely a layer where I feel hopeless and like, Mm -hmm. wow, you know, this is strange to watch. I mean, I feel like, uh, back to the Nazis, I feel like a fucking Nazi in 1937 Mm -hmm. and I'm watching it happen. You know, factory farming, the cruelty that's going on, the Mm -hmm. the unnecessary, the fucking shampoos wiped into puppies' eyes, the the horrible (laughs) shit that we are doing as a species Mm -hmm. And I'm participating in it every time yeah. I drive, every time I eat something, you know, I'm participating in it. And uh, so there's, there's, there's a horrible, negative, toxic feeling there. But there's also the feeling of, well, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing really matters. And in a way, there's some hope. In that, I guess <laughs> I don't know. And there's also like I can't do anything. You know, there's I don't know. There, there are layers. You know, yeah. so I don't. 
I guess despite the fact that I'm very focused on the negative, I'm writing a mm. book called Civilized to Death for crying out <laughs> loud. Uh, and, and I, you know, you might be one of the only people who truly agrees with me that civilization itself has been a colossal mistake. Actually, and a pretty short-lived one, honestly, right? It's, it's not like it's been around that long. And, and one of the things that's interesting about civilization, so civil, it means, you know, city, right? And the mm. citizens are people of the civility, the yeah. polis, they're members of the city-state, right. really. And the city-states are, what, about 6,000 years old? So we're talking like 5% of our current form has lived this way. So, I mean, it's certainly an experiment, but it's, it's not the first one, right? We've had several. So we see, we see, okay, like we rise up in Sumeria, let's say, and what happens? It tanks. And right. And then out of it, let's, we get Egypt. And what happens? They turn the fertile, the fertile valley into a desert Yeah. with, I'll have to point out with organic agriculture, (laughs) right? It's not like they were using, you know, pesticide back then. And they turned Egypt into a desert. I think people picture the Egyptians living in the sand dunes, like as if it's the place that it is now. Right. Organic agriculture, way better than what we call organic agriculture today too, right? A much Mm. more conscious form of agriculture, and yet they turned the place to a desert. They collapse. The Greeks try civilization. It collapsed. The Romans try it. It collapses. I mean, so, so far, um, the the whole track record with civilizations are collapses. They always collapse. So the idea, this is, I love the transhumanist futuristic agenda. The singularity agenda is we're going to escape that pattern, somehow right even though we have no evidence of that i love when people believe in unicorns you know yeah <laughs> there's no and, and then, and then if you question it you're being unrealistic you're such a luddite yeah <laughs> a, yeah a luddite yeah. or a romantic or yeah like, wait a minute yeah. uh, don't question it yeah so yeah. i believe in this thing i call it the intrinsic taboo and the idea is you know we have a lot of taboos but i believe the for civilization the formative taboo is against wildness it ha- it's the it's the intrinsic taboo because yeah. civilization is antithetical to wildness. Therefore, expressions of wildness must be suppressed because wildness feels better than civilization feels. It's, it's the most subversive thing there Isn't is, it? right? So it's any a, it's expression a rejection of the zoo. Yeah. So so if I smell your body odor, you got to cover that because that reminds me that you're wild, right? Like uh, if if I see, oh, how about I like this one? Nakedness is my favorite, right? If we take our clothes off and walk outside right now, they'll arrest us. Yeah. They'll lock us up and we'll be charged as sex offenders, right? The, it, you, we, nakedness is actually a controlled substance. So we can sell it with a license as pornography, mm. right? But to only to be, you have to have gone around the sun 18 times to legally be able to purchase the visions of nudity, right. some limited expressions in art. But essentially nudity is a controlled substance because it might make people think about sex and remind them that, Oh my God, we're mammals, right? right? Like, Oh, a mammal body. So we, you know, we dress it all up and we hide it and we suppress yeah. any expression of wildness because, because wildness, if it's allowed to proliferate, will re, will feel so much better to people that they, I think they would doff civilization. I think if people had the choice, they would choose. And you know, I mentioned this the other day in the panel. It's like, your, this is, your book really influenced me in this way. I, I, I have been promoting this idea of wildness for a long time and um, around food, around water, around air, around sunlight. Because like, we surrogate all those things, right? We, right? we take natural foods. We use processed foods. We take natural water. We, we turn into a processed antibiotic-laden water. Coke is the real right. thing. <laughs> it is the real thing. We, we process our air um, through conditioning systems. We use artificial light instead of sunlight. Yeah. 
and you know, when I try to promote the idea of wildness, even though it sounds beautiful to me, I think a lot of people are like, yeah, right, like living outside, foraging. But when you bring back in the sex piece, like, oh, wait a second, I would have a little more sex. And then you bring in the drug piece, like, wait a second, I would have access to entheogenic drug experiences. And you bring back the rock and roll piece, I would have mm. access to music and dance. Mm. Wildness starts to look really juicy. Like, wait a second, so I leisurely hang out right. with my fam all day long. Mm. I get to do the things that I love the most. I get to have more sex, I get to do more drugs, and I get to have more music, and I work about 11 hours a week to gather my food. And it's not even work, because you're hanging out with your yeah, friends. you're singing as you do it, yeah. right? You're gathering yeah. together. You, it sounds so juicy yeah. that civilization has to sell this idea of um, the hardship of it, right? Of people wearing rotting skins, you know, and, and fighting cave bears, yeah. tooth and claw, because we need to caricature it or, or people will recognize, wake up and walk away from it. I mean, I think we would literally, there would be an exodus from the cities if people knew what was really going on, right? Yeah, yeah, but where would we go? And, you know, it, I mean... Hence the zombie movie. Yeah, yeah, hence right? the, the zombie, zombie movie. Movies, I think right, it really does. Right. It is the background fear that what would happen if we all doffed this? What, you ever what, read Call of the Wild? Jack London. No, I don't think I've Oh, it's it. a classic. It, it's a really interesting book in, in light of this. I haven't read it in years, but Jack London was an interesting cat. He, he, was, uh, he was an adventurer, you know, like he, he worked on uh, ships. I guess, uh, when would that be? Like 1870s, 80s, 90s mm-hmm. in there. And um, when there was the big gold rush in Alaska, he went up, he, he dropped everything and went to Alaska and he wrote some books about the gold rush and, you know, the Yukon and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, call of the wild, which was his massive bestseller, um, is about a dog who like a big, uh, like a Malamute kind of like a big, you know, husky Mm -hmm. kind of dog. dog. Yeah. Who gets sold from, you know, he's got a good life and his master dies and then he's taken by someone else and they make him a fighting dog. They put him in the fighting thing mm-hmm. and he starts, you know, and he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't like to fight, but he's built for it and he does this fighting, but he's always hating it and all this shit. And then he's sold to someone else and so on. And it's like his experience. And in the end he escapes and runs off with wolves. Yes. Right. It's yes. really because it's, you know, obviously it's an allegory for civilization right. and the right. trials and tribulations and the yearning because he hears them howling at night and he's like, that's where I need to be. Whoa. That's what I want. So I, I'll, yeah, that really triggers some things for me here. So, um, so all domesticated dogs are gray wolves. Yeah. The Chihuahua is a gray wolf as, as is the Alaskan Malamute. But when we look at the Alaskan Malamute, we see the gray wolf. We look at the Chihuahua, the gray wolf is very far removed, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the further that we go from the wild progenitor, the, the shallower the gene pool gets and the less survivability and adaptability we have. Now, we can't become wild. Again. I don't know if you ever saw the Nazi experiments with the auroch. Are you familiar with this? The, the auroch, the, yeah. the prehistoric the, the cow, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's this is an interesting Lascaux. piece because all cows come from the auroch. Yeah. But the aurochs now extinct, so the, the, the lineage has been cut, the root's gone. If we lost all our dogs to some rare disease tomorrow, we can go back to the wolves and we could breed dogs again. We still, 
there's still wild humans left. We're, the conquest is incidentally not over, right? We need to get over this idea. Manifest destiny is not over. We're pushing the last hunter-gatherers off their land, and they either have to assimilate or be killed. The conquest is ongoing, right? Yeah. We don't see it in our living rooms, but it's still happening. But there are still wild humans. Our progenitors are still alive. We're really blessed. This might be the last generation. Cows, not so. The, the, cow, the cow has no wild progenitor left. Right. The Nazis thought in order to champion the eugenics cause, if they could backbreed cows to aurochs, it would be a way of saying, look, we can do this to ourselves. We can become a greater people, whatever. Their agenda was a little tweaky, but I, that, they tried it. Yeah. They ended up with something like the aurochs, but about half the size uh, they're called the Heck Cattle. The Heck Brothers did this. So I often say, like, what uh, the heck? We got Heck Cattle. Yeah. It looks like a mini Oroch. And they're introducing them in Holland or Denmark They, they have or spread them around, but now they're going to try to do it genetic. Because what they figured out is you can't really backbreed. Uh, okay, so that's important to know because, well, let's go back to dogs. Dogs can be, we can, they can't become wild again. They can become feral. Right. Feral is when a domestic organism escapes domestication and goes to live in the wild again. Right. The Alaskan Malamute can do that, right? The, the, the sled dogs, they could do that. The, the village dogs, which don't look that much like wolves, right? The native village dogs, but actually are genetically the closest to wolves. Mm. They can escape and live wildly, but the chihuahua, Good not chihuahua. so much. All right, so how does this apply to us here? Let's make yeah. this useful to us. The further that we get away from our robust hunter-gatherer ways, the less likely it is that we can ever reintegrate back. The more degenerated we get, the sicker we get. So I said before, you know, Neo, I mean, I said uh, domestico fragilis, right? That being our, our subspecies. And, I, and my goal with the rewilding lifestyle is to try to become a homo sapiens neo-aboriginalis, the, the new, Abor the feral human through rewilding practices, right? But the direction we're going in, I sometimes think about this gray alien thing um, as, you know, we've had this symbol that's coming to last like two decades. We've seen these gray alien images everywhere. And, and I often say that's the direction of our evolution. That's what I think that, that thing is, right? So we have the, the creature with the big bulbous head because what human beings can maintain, what I think 150 friends in a social network is what our brain can handle. But Facebook, you got 5,000, so you need a bigger brain. Staring into screens all day long really hurts the eyes, so you need these big Ooh. eyes with built-in sunglasses, Ooh. right? And you're never outside, so you don't need any melanin. Your skin can just be translucent, little devolved mouth because all you eat is processed food, barely any, no sex organ because, well, like, let's face it, let's do, we don't need to even have sex. We can just reproduce you know, through cloning, Lamps, right? Yeah. Long, spindly fingers for manipulating touch screens so your big human sausage fingers don't push two buttons at the same time. A little hive-minded being who can live in isolation, right? And who can experience the world through technology rather than... Like that to me is we have hunter-gatherers as our progenitor and the, the gray alien is like the extreme chihuahua of what humans could become in a way. The humanoid uh, insect almost, right? <laughs> so, so my point is this. The, 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 more, the more domesticated we become, the less able we are to yeah. heed that call of the wild and to actually go experience it again. So that's why I'm so into... To, I'm always talking about the four elements. I think it's a simple way of remembering how to take care of your health. The four elements are the essential things to survival. Earth, that's food. The stuff that comes from soil, water, the quality of water we drink. We're a fish tank, and the quality of water, the, incidentally, in a fish tank, the, the fish flakes are less important than the quality of water. Mm. The quality of water is more important than the fish flakes. So people get really obsessed with food, but they don't think about the water that they drink. Air, right? In a fish tank, you need to bubble air into a fish tank, right? We need good quality air, and we need air that's actually electrically alive. 
most of us are breathing really processed air all the time, deionized air. You go outside, it's like, you know when you've been in an, you say you're given a lecture and after an hour, man, the room is like, the air's already breathed. It's so humid. As soon as you open a door to the outside, that electrically charged ionic air comes in. It's like, oh, it vitalizes you. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's our natural air. And, and this lighting, you know, we think the lights in our house are bright, but, you know, you bring a light bulb outside in the dark and you realize it doesn't light anything up, not the kind of lumen power we get from the sun. So we need food from the earth, water from the earth, air from the earth, and fire from the sun. Those are the four elements that we live by. And when we start to think about that, it kind of rewilds our body a little bit. Mm. We become more, more able to become like feral organisms. So, so the idea, human beings can't become wild again. We're not going to be hunter-gatherers again anytime soon. But we can sort of become, at least we can reapproximate the zoo, like we talked about. We can build habitats for ourselves that are more natural. And we can become kind of feral. But if we, but again, Jack London's dog could do it because it was a Malamute. If yeah. it had been a Mexican hairless, I think it would have been a little more difficult <laughs> for it to, yeah, exactly. The yeah, wild, box, wild the packs poodle. of poodle. <laughs> I'm going to pause real quickly and just change the batteries here. Hold on. All right, we're back. I've changed the batteries. Everything's better. I, I didn't want to, I was, I was explaining to Daniel. During the break, this recorder I've got, if the batteries die while we're talking, everything's gone. I would, I would have lost an hour of interesting stuff there. Uh, we were talking two things that, in what you were talking about, the, the four elements when we took a break there. Um, fire. Here's another thing that didn't come up at the conference, and I don't know research on this. Maybe you do. It often occurs to me that... The latest evidence is that our ancestors had fire about a million years ago, controlled yeah. fire. So for a million years, which is a long fucking time, every night, every human has sat around looking into fire. While we chat, while we fuck, while we sleep, there's the fire. And it, fire is this endlessly fascinating, comforting Oh, gorgeous, I'm beautiful turned thing. On right now. Right? Yeah, right. I mean, it, it's such a deep, deep thing. And here we are. We don't have fire in our lives. If some people have fireplaces. Oh, but, but, whoa. We but have we, TVs. We have TVs. Right, which is bullshit, right? TVs are as close to fire as, uh, you know, Dr. Pepper is to mountain spring water. So, the, the, but the point I was going to make, not just the, you know, the, the angry rant, but I wonder to what extent... Those millennia, generation after generation after generation of us staring into this ever-changing, dancing, gesticulating flames is imprinted into our brain structure. Yeah, we, we do. I believe we require it. You know, so, so some interesting things come up. Humans never learn to make fire. We became a, we, when we became a species, we already had fire mastery. Mm. That's fascinating to me. I mean, that's, I, that's really actually hard for me to understand. Like we had fire as, as at the birth of our species. Cause people yeah. have to, I love this question. Oh, what makes human beings different? Oh, it's our, our, our it's that we have articulating thumbs. Yeah. It's like, no, we, we are the only species that controls fire. Right. And I, so I, I think it's brilliant. Not a lot of people have made this connection. I think it's cool. You did. Um, we see these images when radio first comes. 
and all of a sudden the family's not around the fire anymore. They're right. around the radio. What's radio? It's electromagnetic energy. What's fire? It's electromagnetic energy. Fire is like um, stored sunlight, right? Mm. Stored in the carbon bonds yeah. of yeah. living things. Mm. And it's released sunlight, right? It releases heat and light again. Um, and it, we look at it, but we also get the infrared from it too. I think human beings have a deep, long connection with with infrared, which is why we also love to huddle around heat sources. Yeah. Right. And I, why I love my infrared sauna. Cause it gives me at least the surrogate zoo form of some fire. But when we see people going around that, and then we see the, the living room set up around the fire now, instead of the fireplace, it's the television set, but then it goes to the personal computer. So this is interesting because one thing, and I think that you, you start to identify this in your work is we go from these, what, 50 to 150 person groups. Then we go down to the nuclear family then we take the nuclear family apart with surrogate fire. So the, there's still nuclear family around the TV, but then and now it's individuals around the computer. Now it's individuals carrying around their surrogate fire source in the palm of their hand. And it's a place where you can um, have your own fire. You don't have to share it with anybody. Everybody gets their own light source to stare into. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it yeah. fractures us from like as if the nuclear family wasn't bad enough. Now we get down to... In, in, and how will how will the greys live in their pod in their iPod, <laughs> right? Every every little eye in their own pod. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's so it's just so like sometimes I want to puke when I think about it. Like iPod. It's like I live in a pod by myself, and I interact with people through it. Right. Like surrogate interactions um, through my. So anyway, I guess what's interesting about it is. It's natural to want to stare. Sometimes I'm like, why am I staring into this light source? Yeah. When you think about it. How we, prior to the invention of electricity, humans didn't have many direct light sources except the sun, the stars, and the fires they made, occasionally lightning. But everything else is reflected light, right? But fire, when you stare into it, is actual generated light. We yeah. can't stare into the sun except when it's setting and rising. So fires were the main light source we stared into. And you look at people now, I mean, go anywhere. You see everybody's, there's something about staring into the light source that we can't stop, so, right? We I mean, can't stop. In the case of fire, it's so relaxing. Yeah, right? It's that warm, sure. orange, you know, deep. Sure. And that infrared. the blue, oh, you yeah, know, the exactly. blue high energy. Yeah. Uh, day, day, keep light. moving, keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. So, so infrared, when we're in the presence of infrared like that, it actually um, activates our, our parasympathetic nervous system. So I talk a lot about detoxifying. That's a big interest of mine, how we can detoxify, wash out the sponge of our body, basically. Right. And um, sweating is one of the ways we remove fat-soluble toxins, right? So, you know, we can't pee out a lot of pesticides and heavy metals and things because they're not soluble in water. They're soluble in oil. But when we sweat, we release water and oil. So it's a way our body can get stuff out. So a lot of people go, well, I, I run, I exercise. Well, when you run and you exercise, you're in sympathetic nervous system fight or flight. And the body can't detoxify. The detoxification pathways are non-essential when you're running. Oh. Body doesn't care about that when you're running. Interesting. When you're in the sauna or a sweat lodge, uh -huh. which what's neat when you look around the world, you see this idea of sweating is really important to people, even when they were in a clean environment. Right. When you're in that heat, you, and you feel this even in the, in, in a hot, you know, equatorial areas, that Island time, when you're in heat, your body just wants to relax. And it's like, uh, you can use saunas as a surrogate for meditation because meditation activates the parasympathetic nervous system just like a sauna does. So when you're sitting around a fire, you go parasympathetic like a monk 
almost. And it puts you into that state where your body's detoxification channels open, repair starts happening, the brain starts to defrag itself because we're in, we're in meditation, mm. right? It naturally meditates us. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. Yeah, I hear Cassie's, Cassie's over there going, yeah. <laughs> She's, where do you live? I live up in Maine. In Maine. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, and I, and I want to add something to this. You know, I love primitive skills, applied archaeology, right? Mm -hmm. I, I know that it's not a, a path for everybody, and I know it's not the answer to how we get back. I mean, but I love it. I love learning how to make fire from friction. So hand drills and bow drills and learning how to generate fire from the landscape is one of the most exciting things to walk into the woods and grab some materials and actually be able to generate a fire. People call it rubbing two sticks together, which isn't quite what happens, but right. that experience is connect. I mean, when you do that, when you first get a, an ember to come out of, of, out of the environment, it feels like you've just given birth to something and it connects you to the power of that. I mean, it's one of the most spiritual experiences. And when you get this ember, you then have to put it into a bundle of tinder you've made and you hold it to your mouth in a prayer position to blow on it and fire bursts out of your hands. I mean, the first time you kind of almost cry, you know, it's so magical. Um, and that experience has really connected me to how d human beings, that, that uniqueness about us, it's fire. Right? Mm. It's fire. And interestingly, we've lived with fire all that time, like a million years, sustainably, until something happened recently where we started to go, what can we do? Because you, you, you ever see this male quality when you're around a bonfire? Like sometimes the guys get a little crazy. It's like, how big can we make the fire? We've been doing that. How big can we make it? Can we make it Hiroshima big? Right? Can we make it Nagasaki big? Can we make it Bikini Atoll big? How, you know, can we make it, you know, the fat boy Russian atomic bomb big? Like, we got obsessed with making the biggest fire we could, right? Can we blow holes in the ocean floor? Can we, can we make a, you know, can, what happens if we detonate them in space, right? Can we blow holes in the ionosphere? Like, this obsession with fire got a little out of control because we got so out of balance. Yeah. Fire is that one element. Earth, easy to keep in balance. Water, easy to keep in balance. Mm. Air, fire is the one that kind of wants to get its a chain reaction. Mm. wants to get a little out of control. And humans have got a little out of control with it, right? I mean, burn the whole place down. <laughs> <laughs> you, ever, you ever heard that there's a, a guy, a British guy, who was in Papua New Guinea uh, doing uh, a film for the BBC and he stayed with some hunter-gatherer people, you know, not uncontacted, but mm -hmm. pretty far back. And I think it was in the Belen Valley. And um, they had uh, interpreters with them. And, and they spent a couple months with these people. And uh, at some point, one of the people said, you know, you, you've been here with us for a long time. And it's interesting. When, when can we come to see how you live? <laughs> So the guy was like, well, I'll check it out when I get home. Right? I'll, I'll get back to you on that. So he did. He gets back to London and he talks to uh, his bosses at the BBC. And they were like, fuck, that's a great idea. That'd be really interesting, right? We'll film that. That'll be part two. So uh, then he, he contacts some anthropologists because he was very concerned about how this would affect the, the people. Yeah. You know, they wanted to do it, but... He, you know, he's like, oh, they're going to come and see how we live and they're not going to want to go home. You know, I don't want to get stuck with these, you know, four or five hundred gatherers who like don't want to leave McDonald's. And he said like that was the first uh, indication that he was like completely f fucking wrong because every one of the anthropologists said, are you kidding? You arrogant idiot. They're not going to want to stay here. You know, <laughs> you're so fucking wrong. So 
they did it. They bring these these guys. I think there were some women as well, but some guy, uh, mostly men, I think. They bring them to London. They're spending like a month in England, and they like put them up with some of the producers. They're living in houses and stuff. And there's one one story where they're having breakfast, and the guy's getting ready to go to work. They've been there a couple of weeks, and the hunter gatherer guy says, "So, you no, know, where are you going every day? You're gone all the time." And, and the guy says, "Well, I have to go to work." He says, "What do you do?" I I move papers and do things. He's like. Um, why? Why do? You, why don't, don't you want to be with your family? He says, "Well, you know, I have to work to pay for things like this house." And the hunter gatherer says, "Really? How many days do you have to work to pay for this house?" It's <laughs> <laughs> thirty years. Yeah, yeah. Like what? Are you fucking kidding me? Right, like, right. I, I want a house. My friends and I build a house. It's like two days. Like right, what are you right, talking right. about? So oh, so sweet. anyway, they were like completely not impressed mm-hmm. with Western civilization. But there was one thing, one thing from all their time in in England juicy. that they what took back. <laughs> huh? Oh, juicy! What is it? I'm on the edge of my seat. It's, so they were interested in archery. They took them um, to an archery range, right? Because they all have bows and arrows, and they they were like, "Wow, these arrows are really short, <laughs> and they have feathers on them." What do the feathers do? And they figured it out. The feathers make them fly straight. We can make our arrows shorter if we put feathers on them. That's oh the one gosh. thing. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. You know, that's really interesting because we see a similar thing happen. Well, yeah, I love the arrogance. We, we don't realize that the things we think we love here actually just occupy us enough to not realize how much of a hell this is. Exactly. Right? Oh, man. You said that. Yeah. Yeah, and then the the one thing that I see consistent in the early um, reports, the ethnographies um, from here is what the people want. They were like, "Oh, steel pots; these are awesome. Steel axes; these are awesome." Yeah. Other than that, can you leave us alone? Like, right. we, it's nice to not have to make fresh ceramic every couple of days right. because we break them all the time. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, the idea that these people want something from us, and I love also what you just said about the house because we call it a mort gauge, the death gauge. A mort gauge, yeah, it's French, right? So it's like my life is measured in the paying off of my home, basically, right? It's a gauge of death gauge. I never thought of that. That's really interesting. Mort gauge, you're right. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of demented. I mean, we do. I sometimes I feel like we've been hijacked by a death cult or something. Well, it's definitely. I mean, this since I thought of this parasite thing. I mean, it's just a couple weeks since I I first had this this idea, but it's really kind of shifting the way I've been thinking because I was thinking like Frankenstein kind of we made a machine the machine's taken over it's got a life mm-hmm. of its own now we're you know being victimized mm-hmm. by it. but the more I think of it no it's some it's some super organism yeah. that has now we are embedded within it yeah and yeah. and we can't see its agenda you know yeah but uh, yeah the the mortgage that's I'll never think of that word the same way that's fucking freaky what was yeah, you you even have to apply to get one. I mean, <laughs> if if your credit's good, we'll let you have a death gauge. Yeah, yeah, we'll let you. It's like in. an ankle bracelet or something. You know? <laughs> uh, so, what do you think about when I'm sure you hear this this argument? People who say, "Look, human beings are part of nature; therefore, anything that we create is natural." Mm, well, that that's a great one. I love that one because then I say no. You're, you're confusing natural with artifact. Mm. Artifact. So, so yes, everything in the universe was wild. And then we've taken wild things and made them into artifacts. 
And what we see consistently is when we interact with, um, that's where the word artificial comes from. Artificial uh, being the opposite of natural, artificial means it is an artifact, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, I get it. It all comes from natural stuff. But when we arrange it in certain ways, our bodies have no um, experience with it. And these things always become toxic. I mean, it's like, I, I'm just amazed. Like, when are people going to get it? Do they not look at the data? There is a glut of data that shows us that every time we make some synthetic thing, it's always toxic to us. Almost every time. I mean, I don't really, I can't even think of exceptions to where the new fangled man-made idea is better than the natural idea. What we see, the consistent pattern is we always think it's going to be. We do it for a while and we look back and see the colossal mistake, right? It's like, you know, it's like people margarine. smoking. Yeah, margarine. People smoking in, in the maternity ward. Right. Right. People smoking on airplanes in the smoking section on the airplane or whatever. <laughs> on the airplane. Who the fuck thought of that? Yeah. Like, so, oh, yeah. So, and, but yeah. believing this was like, you know, and then, I, and then I love the idea when it's like, and by the way, I want to say I'm not anti-tobacco. I want to be clear about that. I mean, when I look at hunter-gatherers people all across this continent in South America too, the the glue that bound cultures together was tobacco. So I have a huge love for Nicodemus. It was a ritualistic use. Sure. It wasn't well, I mean, smoking because you I mean, were bored at work. Sure, but you, know, you, you end up praying a lot and having a lot of rituals too, right? So, <laughs> but, but that said, yeah, I just want to say that I, I, I don't believe in the devil's plants, right? This mm-hmm. idea that there's plants from the devil like... Oh, that's a bad plant, but this is a good plant. So I just want to be clear about that. But my point is, like you don't know when you start smoking, like, hey, this is probably not the best thing for my lungs here. Like, like civilization acted surprised when they found out that it caused cancer. Like, oh, we, we didn't know. Yeah. Right? Like, what a shocker. And then people blame the companies. Like, like you couldn't tell. Right? Like, it's just funny. Yeah. When, when, you know, like, Stand yeah. Stand like, down wind from the fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I just think it's funny. We do these weird artificial things to ourselves, and then we, we always ex- act as if we expect they're going to be good, and then act surprised when we find out they're bad. Like, oh, BPA is bad? Oh, oh we had no idea. Yeah. We, thought, we thought it would work. Like, yeah. it never works. Yeah. There's no, I don't ever see it work. And it seems like once we, there's some, this critical shift, we're moving into a critical shift right now. Um, this is the year Google Glass goes live. This is the year the cyborg, right? The human-machine interface begins. By the way, the old idea of the cyborg, remember the 80s cyborg? They have to cut you and actually like insert the machine into your neurology through mm-hmm. like, a wound? I mean, that's pretty old-school thinking, right? Obviously, the cyborg will wear the machine because now we, you don't have to cut the person to do this, right? Mm-hmm. You can wear it. So, so this is the year, I think, of the year of the cyborg, right? This is the year of the drone, Right, the drones go live this year. Whoa! Right, this is um, this is the era of three D printed food. Right, this is the new food movement. If you guys aren't aware, listening out there, Google it. Three D printed food. So what they're able to do, I got, I got a great quote at home. It's um, guys from the three D printing food manufacturing world saying, "Well, in the future, only the rich will be able to afford real food, vegetables and meats. The rest of us will eat." biologically appropriate food for our body type that we buy in print cartridges, bring home and print off the meals that we want, and everybody's meals will be tailored to what um, the top-down sort of Obamacare government decides your body needs. Dog food. Dog food, right. Domesticated dog food. So, well, yeah, human food. So, you know, we're we're, we're already there. I mean, you know, let's face it, only the rich can eat real food right Right. now. Yeah, yeah. however we define real food. In this, at least in yeah, in the Western yeah, in in the Western world, in our the first world, (laughs) the winners. You ever heard of the yes men? Mm -mm. 
they're hilarious. They're fantastic. They're, they're these guys who punk media uh, as a way of making a political statement. Oh, cool. So like when uh, Union Carbide uh, was sold to uh, DuPont, I think. You know, they bought Union Carbide, which was about 15 years after the Bhopal disaster. You know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. Bhopal? Bhopal was a Union Carbide plant in India that uh, had failed all sorts of inspections. It was producing some sort of super toxic gas. The gas ex- uh, escaped. There was some gas leak. Cloud went down, killed like 10,000 people, 100,000 people, fucked up forever. Major wow. environmental catastrophe, right? The head of Union Carbide immediately flew out. The guy who ran the plant flew out of India, never faced charges. They shut down the plant. They've never paid a dime to help anybody. Right. Just fuck you guys, we're out of here, right? Really bad scene. Corporate veil. People are still... You know, the birth defects and on and on. B-H-O-P-A-L, I think is how it's spelled. Anyway, Bhopal, Union Carbide. If you Google it, you'll find it out there. Um, but uh, anyway, the Yes Men. So this guy, when when uh, DuPont bought uh, Union Carbide, he they set up a website that said Union Carbide, blah, 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 whatever. And they get invited to things as spokesmen. So he gets invited <laughs> to go on the BBC. He dresses up in a as one of these guys, okay. as a spokesman as for, for like Dupont or Union Carbide, right. and he goes on and he's on BBC World Economic Live. News, right? Live. Oh, right. And he says, "Yeah, well, today we would like to announce that at long last we are going to pay reparations <laughs> to the thousands of people who you know we wow. were responsible for their death. We're going to. It, it's a small part." Of our, uh, you know, uh, uh, annual revenues or like 1% or whatever. There's really nothing to us. We might take a minor stock hit or whatever temporarily, but we think it's the right thing to do. We're setting up hospitals. We're going to supply clean water. We're going to do this. We're going to do that, right? And the BBC guy was like, well, that's really great. That's fantastic. He's like, well, we think, you know, we have a responsibility to the people who live near our factories. Bullshit. Bullshit. That's amazing. They do stuff like this all the time. Yeah. Check amazing. them out. The Yes Men. There's a film called The Yes Men Save the World or something. Right. It's just yeah. like a that's couple a, of dudes who run around doing this shit. It's fantastic. Why am I talking about that? I don't There's know. I don't you know. Were saying... I was talking about the age of the cyborg, 3D printed food. Oh, food oh, that's right. So they go to a, a conference about food and poverty and all this, right? And completely straight suits and ties and all that. And they've got this PowerPoint presentation. And they're they're uh, presenting this new product, and I think it was it was either like um, Union uh, uh, who's, Archer Daniels Midland. I think they they presented themselves as as representatives of this big agricultural company, and so they, so the the story is that in the first world we don't absorb most of the nutrients in the food we eat, right? Oh and so it passes through our digestive system with lots of very valuable nutritional content <laughs> unabsorbed. And so the idea, and he's got this graph, this you know, fancy PowerPoint thing, and it, like, it shows this guy eating a burger, and the burger goes through his <laughs> digestive system, and then he shits it out. So this thing catches the shit, and through a, a process, the patented process, we remove the you know the contaminants and blah 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 and extract this, and 
we want to present to you the Reburger. It <laughs> <laughs> will be sold now to the third world that can't right. afford burgers, right? <laughs> like, and you see the people in the audience, like half of them are just like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> you know, and only one or two people are like, I think this is disgusting. Right, right. <laughs> Copography, corpography, there's yeah. a name for eating shit. Yeah, yeah. it's corpography. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think that is kind of the, their direction in a weird way. I mean, because this three D printed food thing is what what the idea is. You take a bunch of ingredients, or, or, or by the way, ingredients are organisms. Mm. Ingredients are species. I mean, humans sometimes forget that what we eat is species, <laughs> right? Like we yeah. we went out to dinner last night. Austin's got some amazing farm to table restaurants. Yeah, and the goal was how many species can we eat tonight? Because when we look at hunting and gathering peoples, we see that they have this tremendous food diversity, oh, right? Yeah. Something like 120 to 200 species a year, whereas we, we in the West are getting about 30 organisms a year. Yeah. And people forget that, that, you know, so you walk into a supermarket and you think, I'm going to do some diversity here. So right. tonight I'm going to have broccoli. Tomorrow I'm going to have cabbage. The next day I'm going to have kohlrabi. Yeah. The next day I'm going to have Brussels sprouts. Right. The next day I'm going to have you know cauliflower. And then I'm going to and, and I'm going to have kale. Then I'm going to have collard. Not realizing that every species I just mentioned is one plant. Right. All the same plant. Now, just like yeah. we take a wolf and mutate it into a bunch of breeds. I was, I was just thinking that yeah. it's exactly the same, same thing. Yeah. So we yeah. can. So we have the appearance of variety. Right. So, but if you know, you could eat a chihuahua tonight and a Great Dane tomorrow, and the next day you can have a Shih Tzu, and the next day you can have a bulldog, and the third day yeah. you can have a bullshit. And and you're still you're just eating dog. Yeah. Right? Oh, I don't I don't want a Chevrolet. I want an Oldsmobile. I want a Pontiac. It's all the same fucking company yeah, same, people. Exact same thing. Yeah. Right. Right. So so yeah. So you know what what the idea um, with the 3D printed food is um, to take certain species that lend themselves to um, indoor growing conditions and genetic modification and be able because again the goal is like to almost um, isolate human beings from the environment to the point that we could live on maybe spacecraft or some kind of biodome thing so so you take mealyworms and crickets and algaes and you create these genetically modified forms of them and then you process them then into powders that then can be printed into cool geometric shapes cool geometric colors and why are they, I mean, one reason I think this is kind of dangerous is because you can still look on your plate and identify certain species, right? Like, hey, that cat's a carrot. You might not know that the original, what the original wild carrot's like, but, you, you know, some of you do. Some of you know that the seeds of the wild carrot are a great birth control. But anyway. Oh, sorry. That's reminding me to come and meet you. <laughs> great. Yeah, here you are. Hey, good job. Um, but, but I think with the 3D printed food thing, that, that will be the next generation won't be able to identify what species they're eating anymore, right? There'll yeah. be no connection left to that. And, and, and it gives the impression then that food just comes from the printer, I guess, uh, where it comes from cartridges. Dude, I, I was in Alaska in the 80s. Uh, I went up there to work in the salmon cannery one year, and oh, then wow. I was on a boat the next year. Anyway, the, year, the first year I was up there, I was with this buddy of mine, um, and he was a vegetarian. I think I was a vegetarian then too, but uh, Kenai, Alaska, we're living in tents on a bluff, beautiful place, but like vegetarian food. Like, <laughs> Ooh, I love it. the lichen out here. Yeah. There was like a Hardee's or something that had a salad bar. So <laughs> we went to the salad bar and we were making our salad and there were um, sliced hard boiled eggs, right? 
And so he took some of the sliced hard-boiled eggs, and we were eating, and I... Something looked weird about the eggs. Like the, the, the proportion of yolk to white was the same in every slice. Oh. <laughs> like it was only the centers of eggs? Or what well, that's, yeah, because, you know, if you slice an egg, right, it's like smaller, some, you get smaller, a lot, some, you get a little, right, whatever. Sure, sure. But there, it was the same in every slice. So I looked more closely at the, and it was like there were like little bubbles in, oh, the, wow. in the egg. <laughs> and you could see that, there was no separation between the white and the yolk. It was just different color. It was the same material. And then oh. I like broke it. It was sort of spongy. <laughs> so we were like, what the fuck is this? So we go up to the, the counter and we say, hey, what, what's up with the, the eggs thing? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, these, this isn't real eggs, right? This isn't, these aren't eggs. And she said, yeah, they're eggs. I, I said, how do you know they're eggs? She said, well, I, I cut them myself. And I said, well, show me. And she said, yeah, they're in this tube here. Oh, my God. I've never seen such a thing. There was a tube. Tube of egg. Of egg. <laughs> like a loaf of egg. That she sliced. <laughs> and, what species of egg is this? she was like, yeah, it's egg. Yeah, sure. That's what eggs look like, man. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. We're, so, yeah, we're in deep. And how far is it from that to printed food, you yeah. know, or like hot dogs? Sure. What is a hot dog? Yeah, printed food. exactly. It's funny with processed food because when you, when you learn foraging, you realize that wild foods need processing. You can't just eat. Most wild foods need processing with the exception of certain shoots and fruits. Mm. For the most part, humans have to process food. And when processed food got popular, the idea was... You are now like wealthy people. Someone else processes your food. You don't have to do it by hand. You're no longer right. a peasant. But somehow then that morphed into foods that were industrial foods. And we call industrial food processed food, which is a little unfortunate because as a forager, you know, if I, if I gather seeds, I have to dehull them. That's a process. It takes time. And it's yeah, a process. Like a process. Through. Cooking is right. Yeah. Fires, yeah. we use it to detoxify foods or render yeah. them edible. But the kind of, when we say processed food in this culture, we really mean industrial food. Right. And now we're moving to technological food. Um, and again, you know, I mean, maybe the earlier when I made the gray alien metaphor, it sounded a little weird, but what, a, what would gray aliens eat exactly? Right. Do you picture gray aliens sitting down to a salad or like, you know, to a, to a steak? I mean, there <laughs> is some kind of chopsticks. Yeah, like they, yeah. They don't need them. Some kind of weird process for soil and green. It's people. Yeah. It's people. Yeah. Just something out of it. Astronauts. <laughs> astronauts. Like what astronauts. Yeah. So NASA too, actually right? developed Gorp. a 3D printer for food. Oh. So this is actually, they've been funding this research because they, they want to use it in space. Um, and again, you know, when we look at the whole agenda, it almost just feels like the goal is like, we don't like this planet. We got to get out of here. I, you know, sometimes I'll talk about like, you take a hunter gatherer, you take a, a backpacker on, let's say the Appalachian trail. And, uh, and then you take an astronaut from the moon. The backpacker looks more like the astronaut than the indigenous person. Right, the big oversized boots, the like crazy shiny clothes, the huge pack, the helmet, the gl it's like modern domesticated humans going into nature act as if they've come from another planet and they're in some hostile environment and they need all this you know, they need this whole spacesuit to like walk across a trail. Right? <laughs> And uh, this because it's almost like we act like we're not from this planet, right? We we're like act as if we're a bit more angel than ape or something. And so it's just fascinating to me that it seems like you just, and, I, and I guess this brings us back to that sort of aggression as a child thing. Like I just never have understood what's wrong with this place. I love it. I think it's a it's a paradise. Every time I'm out in, in when I say out in nature, I want to make a distinction between 
clear-cut regrowth and actually oh. good wild environments. Because a yeah. lot of people think, oh, yeah, that's the woods over there. They yeah. think, like, the woods in their town are what's left from the nature that was there, and no one's ever cut that. No, that's all been cut. There's no old growth left around here. Yeah. This is all, like, spots. that The woods near your house are basically a big lawn that's grown up. That's not real nature, right? That's not a climaxed forest. But yeah. any time you're in a climaxed area... When are you not just breathless with the beauty? When are you not just stunned by the, yeah. uh, the by the creation? And what's so wrong with this place? And why people want to get off to you know the moons of Saturn? I just you know to see if there's water there. We gotta like why is this? What is wrong with this place? I mean, I think it it really could be. Well, you, know, you said it before. It's that Eden. It's 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 a paradise, and people act as if it's some kind of hell. And I just have never understood why. What's what's there to get away from? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's, that is the essential tragedy of our species, that, that we had a really sweet fucking place. Yeah, oops. We <laughs> fucked it up. Bad, yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, I could talk to you all afternoon, mm-hmm. and, and, but you know, we, we got a, you've got other stuff to do. And, uh, what, do you, what do you do? What, what's mm-hmm. your, uh, you know, what's your, what are you selling? You, you must uh, do, you guide trips? Do you help people deal with health issues? What's your... So, so my main thing is um, I am like a health strategist. Mm. So I develop strategies. And earlier I talked about the four elements. That was the, the broadish, broadest possible brush stroke of what I do. But I develop health strategies um, for us to incorporate this wildness, this rewilding idea to reapproximate some nature. So um, I've developed a huge curriculum um, of material for people to sort of take what pieces, tools work for them as strategies. I mean, to get through this world now, you basically need a strategy. So, so I develop health strategies and I do a lot of education on that. So I do the philosophy stuff like we talked about today, but then a lot of tactical, practical mm. stuff that people can incorporate and see really massive change in their lives. Occasionally I do do workshops and things like that. And you can find that on my website, danielvitalis.com. Um, and incidentally, if you go there, I do a free online magazine called Rewild Yourself, um, which you can access there as well. So I'd love people to, to sign up for that. Um, but then I also have a company called Sir Thrival. And so there's my word play again. Yeah, you're good uh, at that. Well, you know, because survival is what? It's the delaying of death. Mm. Thriving is like an art form, mm. right? And so um, this world is like, to me, it's like the zombie apocalypse, but I'm not going to just survive here. I'm going to thrive. And so Sir Thrival is a company um, that does all whole food or crude extracts of whole foods. And they're all very focused on redeveloping systems that go dormant or dysfunctional in domestication. So foods that reawaken the immune system like medicinal mushrooms, food that awaken the gonadal hormone systems like elk antler extracts or pine pollen, which contains testosterone. Very interesting. Really? Yeah. You know, all pine pollen contains testosterone. Really fascinating. In the springtime, what's happening is basically pine pollens jizz, pine trees jizz on everything. Right. Because uh, pollen is the sperm of plants. Right. Uh, spray it on everything and the testosterone and other androgens that are in there kickstart the whole spring mating season, if you will, right? Everything's getting sprayed in testosterone in the spring. <laughs> um, so anyway, so, you know, I know I do a lot of products uh, there. And then I have another website called findaspring.com. That's a free website. Actually, we're up for a Webby right now, hoping uh, really? to, to win that in the green category. But that's a website that's uh, a, like a Google map interface. Uh, it's, a da- it's a data bank of freshwater springs that people can drive up to and gather all their water from oh, shit, uh, for free. Fantastic. Yeah, and the idea is this, that... The entire Earth, we had a nuclear war, right? We call it nuclear weapons testing. Yeah. We detonated 2,000 nuclear weapons yeah, you're on right. the planet. It's a war. And yeah. The whole Earth is, yeah, yeah it's funny. Nuclear it's a war, war on the but, Earth. And, what you, yeah, and, and countries, instead of bombing each other, they bomb themselves. Right? The yeah. U.S. bombed itself like a thousand times, yeah. right? Yeah, it's a war on yourself. 
Um, so <laughs> that's funny. Um, so the whole Earth is covered in a layer of, of radionucleotides, right? Of heavy metals, of PCBs. The cleanest thing you'll probably ever touch in your life is water at the source of a spring because it's coming up from aquifers where it's, it's been underground for hundreds and thousands of years. So when that water comes to the surface, it's the purest thing most of us ever touch. And we can make ourselves like 65% of our bodies out of that water, which gives us a huge advantage in a toxic world. So, so anyway, so I've developed this website, Find a Spring, and there's a, thousands of people now who go um, to springs all over the world. So you can use that website to find springs in your area. So DanielVitalis.com will link you to all those projects, um, to my company, to Find a Spring, and to all my media. And then, of course, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and I've got tons of stuff like that. My, my biggest passion is education. That's really what I love mm. to do. You travel a lot. I do travel a lot to speak and uh, share my message with people. And, again, the message is rewilding, um, and, and it's... It's philosophical, it's strategic, but it's tactical. Because really we need practical too, right? So I think one, it's easy to fall into the trap if we talk about all this stuff, but it's so important that I think we implement things and actually do things. And so uh, whether it's physical movement, whether it's the foods we eat, whether it's the water we drink, whether it's how to... You know, I guess when I say tactical, I mean I like to teach how to set up the zoo environment, mm. right? And so yeah. I take that four elements approach into the house, and say, how do we make the food here as much like the wild foods as we can with what we have? How can we make the air as much like the air outside after the rainstorm? You know, how do we gain access to the kind of light that, that allows us to produce serotonin and vitamin right. D? How do we sleep like native people sleep? You know, uh, how do we that's, like we haven't talked sleep? about that, but that's something I've been researching for this book. Quite mm -hmm. interesting. Is. This assumption that eight hours a night, sleep mm -hmm. right through, is the natural... No. Bullshit. Yeah. That's wrong. Yeah. 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 So that's for the yeah. factory farm. For really interesting. Yeah. Um, listen, dude, fantastic. And, and, and I can, anyone who's thinking of maybe inviting you to, uh, I mean, obviously just listening to this, they know you're a very good speaker, but I've seen you on stage now, what, two or three times in the last few days. You're, you're a real pro. You're very yeah, good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Very good. Really good. All right. Thanks a lot. We're going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening, everybody. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation?
in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground